Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. If all you know about the African-American military experience in the Civil War is what you remember from the movie Glory, you're still ahead of about 99% of the population. One aspect of that experience that no one has looked at until now is the simple question, why did black men enlist? The answer isn't as simple as most of us thought, according to Dr. Brian Taylor, author of Fighting for Citizenship. Black Northerners, and the debate over military service in the Civil War. We'll talk with him tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Are you ready for a disaster? If you are like many people in the world, that answer may sadly be no. Disasters happen unexpectedly to people just like you every day. Tune into Preparing for the Unexpected with business continuity and disaster planning expert Alex Fullick. The show will not only help you better prepare for a disaster itself, but also to prepare you, your place of employment, and community for the aftermath emotionally, financially, and with a better level of awareness and a stronger feeling of resiliency. Tune in Thursdays at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you tonight from the Civil War Talk Radio World Headquarters Annex on Oxford Road in Greenville, North Carolina. Not coming to you from East Carolina University, uh, where I normally would be, but... It's 2021, we're still in the midst of a worldwide pandemic, so I'm not on campus, and even if there were not a pandemic, I would not be speaking for the university or for anyone else not representing ECU, nor does my guest represent anyone. We're just talking for ourselves as we do here. Well, it's still February 2021, the COVID is still around, ECU's basketball team is on hold. but our soccer team got back in action. The women beat uh, Houston one to nothing in a freezing rain overtime match. Made me glad to be home watching it on television. The big news here, though, at Civil War Talk Radio headquarters is that our daughter Caroline today took her first board exam uh, in her end of her second year of medical school. She has been living with us for the last two months, studying for it 
12, 10 to 12 hours a day, I would say, most days of the week. And I'm, I'm not exaggerating. I've been tremendously impressed and uh, even intimidated by the amount of effort that goes into preparing uh, future doctors. And it has been a source of, of great effort and great tension uh, for all of us in the house. And we're just uh, delighted that she got through it. Uh, she seems to think she did all right, and we'll find out in a few weeks. But that's been the big news around here. Uh, a quick hello to some folks uh, related to the, the program. On Monday night of this week, I got to chat with Tom Carney at uh, WPTF Radio in Raleigh, North Carolina. We do this every year. Uh, on the Monday closest to Lincoln's birthday, he has me on his program for an hour of interview where I get to do what the opposite of what I'm doing tonight. I get to be the guest and give the uh, opinions and so on. He asks the questions, and it's always fun to do that. So, Tom, if you're listening, thanks for uh, inviting me in for a nice interview. And in the, to a much smaller media audience, I spent uh, an hour this afternoon talking with a class at South Central High School uh, here in Pitt County, North Carolina. One of my former students is the teacher for social studies uh, or civics class there, and she invites me regularly to come and talk to her students about various issues. And one of the students asked during the question and answer, what are the pros and cons of being a professor? And I had to say the, uh, th there's no bigger pro uh, than seeing one of your former students teaching her own students and carrying on the, the same thing just as I try to do what, uh, try to be a shadow of, of David Herbert Donald uh, in his day. And if, if I can pass anything on to that to uh, a student who takes it to today's high school students, I feel I'm doing, doing something. While we're talking about education, people who need education, the uh, Board of Trustees of East Carolina University met. I told you last week that they were receiving a recommendation about changing the names of some of the buildings on campus, named for people who certainly did some good things for the, the school in its early years, but were also unabashed white supremacists, as so many important people were in the early 20th century. And their words really don't echo the values of the university today. Uh, the board punted, uh, which was not a surprise. But one of the things I asked was the committee that I'm on, if we could go back and look at all 80 building names on campus, and we don't want to punt and delay this, so could you do it quickly? But could you also do it so thoroughly that we never have to look at the issue again? Could you do a deep dive on all 80 names? And do that in a couple weeks, please. Uh, and we don't, because we, we don't like this issue and we don't want to face it anymore. We were told five years ago it would never come up again when we changed one name. So that's their view. And I told the chancellor afterwards, um, you could also go to your doctor and say, I'd like a physical exam that would mean I would never need medical care again the rest of my life. And I'm also going to the car uh, mechanic on the way home and I want a car repair that will guarantee my car will never need service again the rest of its life. Um, you Just as you want a history report that will be permanently good and will never change. Uh, if you're listening to the show, you know that's not how history works. Um, 
something, the world changes around us. Nothing about these building names was unknown five years ago or even a hundred years ago when they were named. What's changed is what we think is acceptable. And of course, that's going to continue to change. We don't know what direction. Uh, you and I won't be around to see what our grandchildren want to do with building names, but it'll be their world at that point. They're free to do it. Anyway, let's move on. Um, Coming up on the show next week, Cynthia Nicoletti and her book, Secession on Trial, The Treason Prosecution of Jefferson Davis. On March 3rd of 2021, James P. Byrd, A Holy Baptism of Fire and Blood, The Bible and the American Civil War. On March 10th, Leanna Keith, When It Was Grand, A Radical Republican History of the Civil War. And then on March 17th, Brian Jordan, A Thousand May Fall, Life, Death, and Survival in the Union Army. So interesting books coming up ahead and more to follow. You can always follow them at www.impedimentsofwar.org, where Mark Gaffney keeps us up to date. And you can donate there to the Civil War Book and Libation Fund Uh your donations, as always, are not tax deductible. It's tax season. Do not put them on your list or you will end up in the big house. Tonight, we are talking about black service, black northerners, and the debate over military service in the Civil War. That's the subtitle of the book. The main title is Fighting for Citizenship. The author is Brian Taylor. Uh, Dr. Taylor, are you there? Yes, I am. Uh, thanks you. Thank you so much for having me. Well, well welcome to the show. Um, uh, we've just corresponded a bit and chatted before the show. I hope I can, I'll call you Brian if you don't mind. Please oh. call me Jerry. Yeah, please. Yeah. Uh, so, I, one of the things I always am curious about is what people do when they're not writing. Many uh, in the Civil War field, whereas a lot of people who write books are professors, we get a lot of folks also who do this on the side and have other employment. And the back of your book uh, describes you as public historian, scholar of the Civil War era. You've taught at Georgetown, UMBC, and in Baltimore County. Uh, what I read in that is that it's, uh, <coughs> it, there are new, <coughs> excuse me, pardon me, uh, there are new ways to make uh, a career out of history, uh, more ways perhaps than there were 20 or 30 years ago. Uh, how are things going for you in, in, in the history world? Right. So uh, sometimes I, I joke that I'm uh, sort of like a well-educated utility infielder. Um, <laughs> I have a few things going on. So I, I uh, earned my doctorate from Georgetown in 2015, and I taught there for a couple of years um, through 2017 full-time. And um, since then, I have been teaching sort of on and off um, at UMBC, um, you know, semester here, semester uh, semester on, semester off, that sort of thing. Um, for the past couple of years, my main project has been – um, a study of the Fort Reno um, community, African-American community that um, took root in the neighborhood where a Civil War era fort had been um, named Fort Reno um, in uh, northwest Washington, D.C. Um, and uh, in addition to that, I, I've done um, a lot of work with the National Museum of American History since I came down to the D.C. area back in 2010. And that work has continued intermittently um, especially in relation to the um, theater programs that they put on there and the, and the time trial program that they run there. Um, I teach classes down at Politics and Prose from time to time. So 
sort of a variety of things keep me busy um, in the historical world. And uh, my wife and I have two young kids, so uh, life is, is sort of always always fun, always challenging, always something going on. That, that sounds great. There's there's never a dull moment. Every day is different. One of the good things about doing history, I'm a, a, a big supporter of public history, worked in museums before I went to ECU, and I, I, I'm always glad to talk to people who are, are fighting that fight and you know, teaching uh, in, in venues, <coughs> excuse me, I'm, I'm choking up tonight, uh, in venues outside of the traditional uh, classroom sometimes. So you've written a book about the uh, African-American military service in the Civil War. Uh, people listening to the show know that there were close to 200,000 African-Americans who fought for the United States during the war. Uh, your your topic, your your thesis is or question is you know what the debate over military service. Why did they fight? Well, the answer, of course, is they fought to end slavery. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's the end of the this interview. Thank you for being on the show. Uh, <laughs> next week we'll have. No, uh, clearly there's something more complex going on. Uh, uh, what what made you question the consensus on this topic? Um, so, right. I mean, it, 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 in a sense that in a sense that very much is the answer to the question. Um, you fight to end slavery. I, had, I you know, I, I got into this topic when I was starting out at Georgetown because I found a set of sources as I was just doing uh, sort of a dive into um, African-American and abolitionist newspapers published um, during the wartime period and seeing what some of the topics of discussion were. Um, I, I stumbled on the fact that this was, there was a debate over service in the black community. And that was something I did not know. And, um, I didn't. I wanted to know what the contours of this debate were. You know, what would be the position that says you don't go fight for the Union and and enlist to destroy slavery? And um, what I discovered, and, and of course, it's in the literature, um, and and it's well known at this point that um, you know, in the beginning of the war, it is is clearly it is not clearly a war to destroy slavery. Um, that there is a um, an evolution of Union policy towards slavery. Uh, but in the literature on black service, that those first couple of years of the war where union policy is, is evolving, there's not there had not been much coverage of the fact that during this time period, African-Americans are talking about, you know, and they're not allowed to fight at this point, but they're talking about if we are allowed to fight, how do we react to this war? Um, it is not a war against slavery yet. Um, and especially in the light of um, black history, um, and the reality that black men have fought in every American conflict, and um, they've been in large part betrayed um, as slavery has expanded and discriminatory laws have expanded in the aftermath of the American Revolution and the War of 1812. Um, so what I wanted to do was, was look at the contours of this debate. I mean, it, you know, shine a light on the fact that this debate had happened in the first place, and then look at the trajectory of black service with this debate at, at, about, you know, do you fight for the United States? And if you fight for the United States, under what conditions do you do so? How does the fact that that debate preceded uh, black men fighting for the Union in large numbers impact the trajectory of black service and the gains that black service ultimately wins? Now, you said black Americans had fought in every conflict uh, before the Civil War, which is certainly different from what, you know, Chief Justice Taney says in, in Dred Scott that essentially black people had nothing to do uh, with the country, had never been citizens or, or 
had any sort of uh, status or freedom. Uh, but in fact, you say there was substantial military service. That's right. Yes, uh, uh, that's right. Go, go uh, ahead. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, African Americans um, fight in the Revolution. They're there from uh, the the earliest battles of the war. There is a time period early in the war where Congress um, and the Continental Army are hesitant to uh, enlist uh, black troops for a while, but eventually. Uh, the need for manpower wins out. Um, blacks participate in the War of 1812. There's some scattered evidence that, that there may be a few black troops um, in the Mexican-American War, but um, if you look at uh, black historians um, from the pre-Civil War period, what they especially, you know, people like William Nell, what they really point to is um, black service in the American Revolution and in the War of 1812. Um, the the uh, conflicts that win American independence and, and sort of confirm American independence. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I think that what you said of opening the show, um, you know, so many Americans um, take their, their history of uh, black military service from glory. Um, you get the sense from that movie that that's the first time that's ever happened in U.S. history, right? That, that African-Americans have fought for the U.S. and that just isn't the case. So the... You've got this tradition of military service, but you, you use the word betrayal that uh, in the aftermath of these previous fights, you don't see uh, advances in the status of African Americans uh, politically or in terms of citizenship. So that clearly has to figure in the debate that takes place uh, starting in 1861. Uh, that's the question I want to pick up with. We're going to take a short break, and I want to come back and ask you about the uh, really the status of, of free black people in the North before the war. Uh, where were they? What, what rights did they have or not have? So we'll, we'll begin with that. But first, we're going to take a short break. We'll come back. We're talking tonight with Brian Taylor. He's the author of Fighting for Citizenship, Black Northerners and the Debate over Military Service in the Civil War. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective, plus topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite hosts. It's just a click away at blog.voiceamerica.com. That's blog.voiceamerica.com. The Voice America Press Blog. All access all the time. Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips offers a psychological perspective on coping with common and current life issues. This show addresses topics as varied as marital stress, insomnia, depression, raising teens, campus violence, and building self-resilience. Listen in as Dr. Phillips and her guest experts share the latest in books, findings, and information that will inform and enhance your life journey. Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. 
If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Brian Taylor, author of Fighting for Citizenship, Black Northerners and the Debate over Military Service in the Civil War. We've been talking about the fact that the motivations for fighting in the Civil War may seem obvious uh, for people who uh, have particular interest in seeing the end of, of slavery in America. But uh, what Brian's showing us is that, in fact, from 1861 uh, on, for the first couple of years of the war, there's considerable debate. Uh, where where do black Americans stand in the North before the war? So it's sort of a, a patchwork. Um, there's a patchwork nature to the discrimination, um, both de jure and de facto, um, that <laughs> Uh, African-Americans face in the North. Um, generally speaking, you're as a as, um, black person living in the North, you're going to have sort of basic legal protections, um, you know, property rights, uh, protections against bodily harm. Um, but in some states, you might be barred from um, testifying in court if a white person is a party to the, um, to the case. Um, usually informally barred um, from jury service um, in much of the North, um, most of the North, you're going to be barred um, from voting. Um, as, as new states are carved out of the Northwest Territory, uh, they place, um, they pass what are so-called black laws that place very onerous restrictions on African-Americans who want to come into the state. Um, you're going to deal with in the realm of sort of informal prejudice, um, um, Sort of a, a code of uh, of um, separation uh, that governs interactions at public accommodations, theaters, hotels, restaurants, hospitals, cemeteries. Um, so, you know, basically, as um, you know, we think of the antebellum decades as a time in which um, small d democracy is expanding. You, as uh, someone living in the north, who uh, you know, a black man or woman in the north, is is experiencing the opposite. So, our are black people in the North citizens? Well, it's so. That, that, <laughs> we that, could that's talk the, for an hour. I don't. That's the question, right? <laughs> I mean, prior to um, the Fourteenth Amendment, there's no federal definition of citizenship, so there is this confusion about what citizenship entails. Um, now, and, and you see that if you look at the black press, um, and, and, and as, as this is a question that comes up um, a fair amount in, in black newspapers prior to the Civil War, are we citizens or not? Um, James McCune Smith, um, prior in a couple years prior to the Civil War, writes an article um, where he compares the rights that African Americans possess in the various northern states to the rights that Roman citizens um, possess, citizens of the Roman Empire. And based on that standard, he concludes that yes, you know, African Americans are citizens of the United States. As you mentioned, Judge Taney um, decides the other way, right? And um, I, I go into this in one of my chapters. There's this sort of tortured legal logic by which um, state judges and federal officials have tried to, in, in, in opinions and um, and and um, cases and case law, have tried to say that African Americans are not full fledged citizens and yet they owe 
some allegiance um, to to the states in which they reside, to the country in which they reside. Um, so it's 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 unclear, basically. Uh, but African Americans who are uh, living in the United States know that whatever citizenship laws might say, um, you know, are the equal. Uh, do, do they feel equal? Um, to whites and the way they're treated on a day-to-day basis, in the way that they're treated um, in the eyes of the law, in the way that government officials um, uh, treat them? No, absolutely not. Uh, although there has been some good scholarship. Uh, Martha Jones is someone um, whose uh, work was a great influence on me as I was um, working on this book that looks at ways in which African Americans, although formally barred from citizenship, are able to claim um, some of the rights that we associate with citizenship. Um, and, and this gets into this idea of the difference between formal citizenship, citizenship and substantive citizenship that I play with in, in um, parts of the book. Uh, but, but uh, you know, it, it's going to be clear to African-Americans um, you know, living in the South or, or living in the North, and obviously I'm, I'm focusing in, on the North, that, you know, uh, whatever citizenship laws might say, you do not feel um, like someone who is treated equally uh, in the eyes of the law. You mentioned looking at black newspapers. Uh, you just cited one there. That brings up a question about research sources for this. Uh, was there an active African American press? What? What? How did you look for evidence of uh, of debates within the African American world? Yeah. So there, there is a, an active black press, um, both prior to the Civil War and during the Civil War. My, my main. Um, source base for the war years um, is a series of black and abolitionist newspapers published in the North, um, the Christian Recorder published in Philadelphia, uh, the Weekly Anglo-African published in New York, uh, William Lloyd Garrison's Liberator, um, the Pine and Palm, which was an emigrationist newspaper published early in the war, Douglas's Monthly. And my methodology was basically to go through these newspapers issue by issue and see what the debate is about military service. Um, and throughout the war, you know, I, I try to be very careful in this book to say that when I'm looking at um, this debate, the fact that there is a debate over service amongst African-Americans in the North, and I'm talking about the, the fact that there are some African-Americans who say, you know, we shouldn't go fight or not that we shouldn't go fight, but we should delay our enlistment until our demands have been met. I don't know that that's ever exactly the majority opinion. If you were to poll African-Americans living in the North, that more than 50% ever would have landed on like de- the delayed enlistment position that I spend a lot of this book talking about. But it's clear that this is, at the very least, a substantial and vocal minority in the African-American community in the North that's saying, you know, look at, look at our forefathers. They fought for this country and they were brave and we honor them. And yet, ultimately, their struggles, we feel like, were in vain because look at what has happened with, with black rights and slavery. Um, and, and we're not going to repeat their mistakes. There's also a sense that the people making those kind of statements are very much looking at the nation's founding documents as well, the Constitution and the Declaration. Uh, and that's the source of a scholarly debate today. Are the, is the Constitution you know, fundamentally a... a anti-slavery document as James Oakes would have it or is it fundamentally a, a pro-slavery document uh, as Sean Wallens and others would argue uh, where where do you see that let me ask you I want to ask where, where the people you're writing about saw but let me ask your view first uh, well I, I suppose I, I would line up I, I think when push comes to shove you have to look at the fact that for the for the first 
um, yeah, up to the Civil War, the Constitution op it operates and is interpreted by those with responsibility for interpreting it primarily as a pro-slavery document. Um, and the fact that the Constitution provides the legal framework for this expanding slaveholding empire. Um, you know, I understand the, um, the anti-slavery argument uh, or the, the argument for um, the anti-slavery interpretation of the Constitution. Um, but I, you know, I think that we have to look at uh, what the results are um, under the uh, under the rule of the Constitution prior to the Civil War, um, and I think that I mean, and I think that the majority of the people I'm looking at are either a not that interested in in in, in that type of a debate because they want to see um, practical change on the ground and they don't want they don't like to engage in the type of theoretical arguments that keep white abolitionists up at night. You know that's that's one <laughs> that's one sort of difference I see between black and white abolitionists. Um, or, or black activists and white activists during this period is that there is a, a an emphasis on on sort of practicality and pragmatism um, in, in in the sources I'm looking at that are written by black authors. Um, but I also think that that the um, pro-slavery interpretation of the Constitution um, is one reason why so many black activists that I look at gravitate towards the Declaration of Independence in. Um, being central to their definition of what the United States is about and what and how the United States needs to sort of reform itself um, and and bring its lived reality in to, into um, in uh, bring its lived reality um, um, into harmony with the principles enumerated uh, in the Declaration of Independence. And, you know, again and again and again, um, we see the equality of the Declaration of Independence emerging in these sources as, you know, this is what, it, what the United States is about, and this is what the United States does not on a day-to-day -day basis actually, um, actually live out, and this is what needs to change. So, and, and that many abolitionists or anti-slavery figures, you know, Lincoln certainly among them, will... will definitely hitch their wagon to the to the declaration rather than the constitution right. uh, for just that reason the uh, when the war begins african americans do volunteer mm -hmm. uh, but as you point out in your book they they are not accepted they uh, the war is is initially to be a white man's war supposedly mm -hmm. uh, does that affect that that must play strongly into the debate about whether to uh, support the war or try to enlist later. Oh, certainly. Um, and uh, in my second chapter, you know, there's a number of anecdotes that that describe black men who try to volunteer and are rebuffed in very, you know, in, insulting, demeaning, racist terms. And they talk about this had an impact on me. You know, um, in in addition to feeling, uh, you know, again, this the sting of this racism and discrimination that I've I've lived with all my life, my self worth, um, you know. Um, is involved now, um, and uh, yeah, I think there is a recoiling um, after this initial refusal. And I also think, you know, you know at, at, as I was saying earlier, um, you know, at the end of the day, the answers to why black men fight in the Civil War to destroy slavery, to win equality uh, before the law, to win citizenship, to win the vote. I don't provide, um, I don't think, new answers to to that question. What I do is, as I look at the question that's being asked. In 1861, 1862, um, and in and really into 1863, even past the point at, by which black units have formed and are fighting, how are you as a as a black soldier fighting for the Union Army going to be able to guarantee that your service 
will result in slavery's destruction? How are you going to be able to guarantee that you're going to be allowed to destroy slavery? Um, or, you know, or that how are you going to prevent yourself from being sold out and sort of sacrificing yourself in, in a cause um, that ends in, in another compromise over slavery between North and South, which you know, U.S. history has taught us to this point in the early 1860s. That's how um, conflicts between North and South over slavery end up, right? So the uh, so the debate doesn't go away. It, it's at its strongest in in sixty one, in eighteen sixty two. I thought it was interesting. Uh, you point out what a strong feeling there was uh, throughout the country, not just in the African American community, in the first half of eighteen sixty two that the war was about to end mm-hmm. in the North, at least the, the sense that victory was just around the corner, mm-hmm. uh, really before the Seven Days Battles. That that struck me. Uh, it, that must have emerged from the the newspapers you were reading. That that sense of impending victory. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, it, it certainly is there um, in the sources. And I, I mean, you see it. You know, the the Union stops recruiting um, in 1862, right? Uh, you know, the the signs are there as a sort of victory after victory after victory rolls on, and more and more territory. Um, falls uh, to the Union early in 1862 that this thing is about played out. And then you get one of those moments of contingency uh, when Lee takes over and the Seven Days Battles happen. Um, And that, in a lot of ways, changes um, the nature of the war and and the nature of the victory that ultimately results from the war. But I'm certainly not the the first to point this out. But, you know, if... if, um, if Richmond falls in the spring or summer of 1862, um, there's no Emancipation Proclamation. Um, you know, it's hard for me to believe that the slaves who had already made their way to Union lines um, would have been returned to slavery. But I don't think, you know, if, if Richmond falls and the war ends in 1862 like that, um, I don't think you get the death of slavery with the Civil War. Now, that's a counterfactual, and ultimately we can't know. But I feel, you know, as, as much as any counterfactual I could talk about, I, I feel pretty safe in saying that, right? Um, and I, I think that there's these moments in the Civil War um, that are real turning points that we don't always recognize. Uh, obviously, it's a turning point that's often recognized that Lee takes over um, as commander, you know, certainly. Right. Um, but, but in terms of bringing about the victory, that, uh, the victory and, and the outcome of the Civil War that ultimately happens, that moment in 1862, I'm not sure if it often gets its due for how much it influences the ultimate outcome, if that makes sense. Yeah, well, it does. I, and I... I very much hear what you're saying. That argument is, I think, being made more and more that, uh, yeah, had McClellan just walked into Richmond, uh, he would have gotten the kind of war he wanted, where where right. the Southern property, in quotations, was not touched. Right. Um, you mentioned the Emancipation Proclamation. I was surprised reading your book that it, how, how little impact it seemed to make on the debate. Well, I, I, I don't, uh, I, I don't know if I would say it has. Um, well, in, in a sense, I'm well, like, speaking of the preliminary proclamation, September '62, not not the final one. Oh, okay, um, so yeah, I, I think the preliminary proclamation um, doesn't have maybe the um, impact you think it would because a there is this um, feeling of you know is Lincoln really going to follow through on this, and so there's this mm-hmm. sort of wary watching um, that that describes um, the last months of 1862, uh, but but it's also you know. Even before the preliminary Emancipation Proclamation, Lincoln already has the authority he needs to enlist black soldiers, and he hasn't done it. So not that the preliminary proclamation um, doesn't have an impact on African-Americans thinking about the war, but it didn't have the type of sea change in terms of the debate over enlistment that I might have expected it would have when I was just starting out with this topic. 
Um, you know, what I was seeing more, I mean, I was seeing praise for the proclamation, you know, certainly in January 1863 and February 1863 to um, fast forward a few months, you know, praise sure. for the proclamation and um, um, kudos to Lincoln for following through on it and, and all the stuff you would expect. But I'm also seeing Edward Bates, Edward Bates, Edward Bates over and over again and this, this decision on citizenship. Um, which I was aware of, you know, sort of uh, prior, you know, in, in a sort of dim way prior to embarking on this project. But, L- but, let me yeah. let me step in because that was the next question I wanted to ask you about the Bates decision. Uh, we have two minutes before the next break. Give a quick factual summary for listeners who don't know about this not especially well-known decision. Yeah, so Bates is um, asked by Salmon Chase, the, the Treasury Secretary, to make a ruling on black citizenship because of a case involving um, a black sea captain, um, and, and is, he a citizenship, is he a citizen of the U.S. or not? And Bates rules that um, African Americans are citizens, basically, uh, but he also rules that um, citizenship does not imply, citizenship is, is at its heart a relationship of allegiance and protection, allegiance by the citizen to the nation, which is then supposed to provide protection to the citizen. And he goes on this very lengthy discourse where he talks about, does not, you know, he's very clear, it does not imply political rights. And he uses all kinds of examples to show that people who have been citizens, undoubtedly citizens of the countries in which they have resided, have not enjoyed things like the vote or, or other um, rights associated with citizenship or um, political rights associated with citizenship. So this, it's just an attorney general's opinion, but it it's one of the few times somebody in government has spoken out and given some sort of definition of citizenship and it's a quite inclusive one so that this uh it does show up in in the book uh, regularly and, mm-hmm. and really made me curious to know more about it because it is uh, obviously so influential well by the end of 1863 certainly this debate is more or less uh, at an end as as black recruitment is proceeding apace and units are formed and they're fighting mm-hmm. uh but there are there are three issues in particular, and we'll get to those in the in the next segment. Um, the black volunteers are told they will not get commissions as officers, any of them. Uh, they find out they will not get equal pay, and they're aware that the Confederates, if they capture them, will not treat them as POWs, but as escaped slaves three things that white volunteers don't have to deal with. So we'll come back and bring up those issues when we resume our conversation with Brian Taylor. He's the author of Fighting for Citizenship, Black Northerners, and the Debate over Military Service in the Civil War. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all of our show archives on demand. All from your iOS, Amazon Kindle, or Android device. Download it from the Apple App Store, Amazon, or Google Play, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. 
you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between, discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking with Brian Taylor, author of Fighting for Citizenship, Black Northerners and the Debate over Military Service in the Civil War. It's a new book published by University of North Carolina Press. We've been talking about how black Americans in the North uh, debated whether it made sense politically to serve a nation that was not much interested in uh, responding uh, with with uh, equal treatment. Until 1863, by that time, we see black recruitment uh, is authorized by the government and is taking place at a high rate. But, Brian, I mentioned issues that, that mm-hmm. interfered with, with black recruitment very much. Uh, was any one of those issues particularly problematic as you saw it? Well, they're all problematic um, at various times um, mm-hmm. for, for black recruitment, certainly. Um, the pay issue inspires, I think, the longest-lasting um, dissent um, amongst African Americans in the ranks and on the home front, so um, it's it's the promotion issue, it's the POW issue, and it's it's pay. Um, promotion is galling, but everybody knows about that from early 1863 on. It's very clear that um, promotion is not going to be open to black soldiers um, to com- to the commission ranks from from the. Um, from, from the early months of 1863, and black recruiters, people like Frederick Douglass, who are trying to get black men to enlist, are able to explain that away relatively easily by saying, well, that's how it normally goes in the military. You, know, you start off sort of low in the ranks, and you earn promotion by, um, by your meritorious service. Um, <laughs> that one's a little bit easier to deal with. You know, Confederate um, POW policy is... Um, is brutal, is horrifying, and is an emotional issue, and, and it's clear that it acts as a break on um, black men's willingness to enlist in 1863, the, the idea that you might be re-enslaved or bayoneted on the battlefield. And, of course, that happens um, mm-hmm. to, to black soldiers at um, multiple um, engagements uh, across the South. Um, but at the end of the day, that is a Confederate policy. Um, it's, it's obviously not a Union policy. Um, and you know, Lincoln is under pressure to retaliate. Um, Douglas, as a matter of fact, Frederick Douglass um, res- uh, temporarily resigns from recruiting because he thinks Lincoln isn't doing enough. Um, in 1863, um, and there is residual anger that Lincoln doesn't ever follow through on his retaliatory proclamation. Um, but but again, that, that is at the end of the day, you know, a Confederate policy. The pay policy really um, it hits so hard because a it's a surprise. Um, 
as as black recruiters are talking about, well, you know, you don't have access to promotion and you have to think about Confederate POW policy. They're also saying, on, in day-to-day terms, you're going to be treated the same as white soldiers. Rations are going to be the same. Um, uniform is going to be the same. Pay is going to be the same. It's not until the summer of 1863 that the decision comes through um, from the War Department that that's not going to be the case, that, as a matter of fact, black troops are going to be paid less than a white troops on a monthly basis and only get $7. Um, and the, the other thing, you know, I, I think this goes back to Edward Bates's um, description of citizenship as basically like a contractual relationship of allegiance and protection. If you're a black soldier and you're, uh, you have in large part been influenced by this decision which um, upholds your citizenship and describes it in sort of contractual terms, what does it say to you that the first thing the federal government has done is broken this enlistment contract, uh, these promises that are made with you. And especially in the early regiments, you know, the, the 54th Massachusetts, the 55th Massachusetts, these troops sign up explicitly under promises of equal pay. And I think that that is why it's, it, you know, it's, it's the longest lasting of these controversies or the most heated of these controversies. And also because, you know, a lot of these guys, um, they they are you know they are supporting families and they're doing um, so on fairly meager um, civilian salaries and they're really dependent on this money coming through um, and uh, you know so in addition in addition to the indignity you want to be paid um, you know a, a rate at which you can provide protection to your family and, and allow your family to survive. Well, it, it's a very interesting issue. I, you, you draw on Fred Anderson and his work on the, uh, the the contractual understanding of military service in the American colonies, mm-hmm. which uh, you know shaped much of American military experience and how that carries through and continues to carry through. Mm-hmm. That uh, American soldiers have always thought of uh, service in these contractual terms. You do this for me, I'll do that for you. Mm-hmm. Uh, not not a, a language of, of noblesse oblige uh, from European aristocracy. It's a very different way of thinking about service. Uh, and in, in the movie Glory, everyone remembers the scene where they all tear up their uh, pay rather than accept the inferior pay. But you cite a, a moment here where the 29th Connecticut is marching off to war, a black regiment. Mm. And at the ceremony where they are given their colors... They refuse to accept their colors. Say, we're not mm-hmm. fighting for this flag till we get equal pay. We will fight. We'll go and die. But we are not. Don't even give us a flag. Mm-hmm. We're not. We're not playing that. That was quite a scene. Yeah, I thought that was really that was an anecdote that um, you know I came across. I had never heard that story before. That was very um, no. poignant to me. That gesture. And you know, I mean, there is a material thing here, right? You know, again, the, the salary that you're sending home really matters. But when you see sort of vignettes like that, you see how much this is about the principle and, and the fact that, you know, we're allowed to serve is one thing, but the way we serve is another. And if in serving, we don't experience the equal treatment that we associate with citizenship, how can we expect that our services is going to ultimately win us citizenship? And again, if the government can break this contract with us that it's made, what does that say about our ability to use um, our time in the Union Blue to win citizenship and equality for ourselves? Now, in the summer of 1864, Congress does act to equalize pay, mm-hmm. uh, not fully, but eventually, in, in fits and starts, they finally get around to doing so for for uh, essentially all the, the right. black soldiers. Uh, so they get that, that vestige of citizenship is, is there. They're getting paid the same as white soldiers, but 
the question, and, and this is really, I guess, the $64 question for the whole uh, issue, is, is the sacrifice worth the gain after all that black Americans do for their country, looking at what their country does for them in the 5, 10, 20, 30 years after the war, uh, did they make the right political decision? Well, uh, did they make the right... So they read the dynamics of the political situation, you know, I think quite well. You know, the black recruiters... So, so black activists, like, understand the war and, and black abolitionists understand the war, I think, in a really shrewd way from the beginning. And you see this in black northerners, people like William Wells Brown, who are saying, you know, our best hope out of this conflict is actually Jeff Davis and the Confederacy to win a few of these battles and provoke white northerners to countenance a whole lot more change than they would otherwise. And um, so, so that's, that's one part of it is like the dynamics of the war, I, I think, are really well understood by African-Americans in the North debating this question from the beginning. Um, ultimately, black recruiters like Frederick Douglass are right. They say, don't hold to the delayed enlistment position. What you should do is enlist before you've been guaranteed all that you want and trust that this war is different. It's a war with slaveholders, so it's going to destroy slavery. And that by serving now and helping to destroy slavery, you will allow the union to, you know, you, you allow your country to survive, keep your country intact. And as a result, not only will you destroy slavery, you will win um, the citizenship and the equality you're looking for as well. And hopefully that's going to come with the vote. That all happens. Um, so from a purely political standpoint, you know, I, I think that um, it, it, it's played very well if you look at those you know, uh, at the goals that African-Americans set out um, or, or, or the sort of black war, uh, African-Americans war aims that they lay out early in the war, what they what the, the type of change they want to see come from the Civil War, uh, what black activists. Um, but 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 I mean, ultimately, as, as you refer to, what happens is in the long run, that betrayal does happen. It, it's the what's novel this time is that the betrayal happens after the laws that you have passed have been put on the books. It's now that those laws and those amendments are allowed to um, to be breached, um, and your rights and your citizenship are undermined um, for for the next hundred years. So, was it worth? It? I, I don't know. I, you know, I don't know if I feel comfortable um, <laughs> putting myself in, in the place of, of you know a, a black veteran who might answer that question, right? Um, I think what my study shows is that, like, if you can, a, a, as members of a social group, thinking about a you know a wartime. Um, such scenario like this, and if we enlist, do we win the gains we're seeking? Do we win the recognition from the country that we're seeking? You can win that recognition. You can change the law, um, uh, but what you can't necessarily you can't count on being able to do is change the the attitudes and assumptions and prejudices that govern how the law is interpreted and enforced um, in the post-war period. Um, now, uh, you know, I, I, and I also have this, this part in the conclusion where I talk about it's not just like, you know, black citizenship goes away. Obviously, the laws stay on the books. The 14th Amendment stays on the books. But the other thing I found is that, you know, in places, even, even as Reconstruction is coming undone in the South and Jim Crow is, um, is coalescing in the southern states, black veterans experience a great deal of equality when they come under federal purview. And black soldiers on the frontier continue to experience something approaching equality when they're in the army. And I think one thing you see, too, out of this, uh, out of my work, hopefully, is how much you know, federal power is necessary and federal oversight if, if African-Americans are going to get anything close to a fair shake in the post-war period.
Uh, interesting point. I'm thinking of uh, Gregory Downs' work on uh, After Appomattox and uh, the online project he, he's done where you can click on a, a southern state and see represented on your screen where the army outposts are within the south and how that relates directly to uh, black voting in the south that mm-hmm. the army is is critical in enforcing rights for civilians but you make the point it's also critical in uh, it, it, as you say uh, yes the black soldiers got substandard food but so did the white soldiers mm-hmm. everybody got substandard treatment in the post civil war army and uh, it was one of the most equal places in america uh, so there is is something there. It's a story that continues through American history. You allude to it a couple times uh, throughout the book. Uh, you know, black Americans will volunteer. Well, will be drafted in, in, and volunteer for the First World War in large numbers, and, and they'll serve and they'll be denied the opportunity to serve. So they'll they'll serve at the French Army, uh, and then uh, and they'll come home and meet meet uh, another decade of Jim Crow and the Klan in the 1920s, and they try again in World War II with the, the double V movement that you mentioned, where th- this time they, they again are learning the same, uh, following the same playbook as in the Civil War, that yes, we will serve, but we expect at least some level of recognition for what we've done. So... Uh, in, in in trying to figure out what this all meant, uh, reading this book, it's not a long book, but it's very thoughtful and uh, oh, thought provoking. Um, the uh, it, it, the last notation I wrote at the end uh, was they changed citizenship, but not hearts. Um, is is that a fair summary? That, that's a, that's probably a better summary than than I get in the 172 pages, or whatever. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I I think that that is what happens here, right? Um, and the fact that you know, uh, African Americans in subsequent wars have, have faced a similar question of, of why do you fight for the United States? Um, you know, I, I think is a comment on, on the fact that the issues that African Americans faced during the Civil War um, and, and the dilemma about like how do I make fighting for the United States work for me as an African American? You know, that dilemma has persisted. Um, but the laws changed. Yeah, the hearts and minds um, don't. I, I think that's a that's a very good way of putting it. I mean, I don't want to draw. You know. There are differences, okay, between sure. you know, the, the, the the questions the Civil War era African Americans are, are asking, and like Muhammad Ali when he when he says, you know, what quarrel do I have with the Viet Cong? Well, uh, you know, African Americans in the Civil War North, they're very clear on what quarrel they have with white Southerners, but th- but they are not clear on whether you know if they go to battle for the Union this time, it's going to be a fight that you know in which they can actually win the things they seek, right? And that's the question in the Civil War. Um, the question changes somewhat as the U.S. becomes more of a player on the global stage in the 20th century, and the issue of you know you're going to fight non-white peoples abroad when you're dealing with Jim Crow at home. Um, so the, the the nature of the question changes with historical circumstances to some degree, and yet remains depressingly similar in some ways as as we travel forward in American history from the Civil War. I think. Uh, I wonder if that makes it uh, a reason for for some tiny amount of optimism that. Uh, from the time of the movie Glory uh, into the present, there is much more awareness of black military experience in the Civil War, and uh, and that does affect hearts as well as 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 laws. To to see even if represented on the screen, a recognition that this sacrifice was made for the country, uh, and that a debt was incurred, and and 
obviously has not yet been paid back fully. We could talk about it all night. I look at the clock, and we are out of time, uh, much too early, as always. Uh, Brian, uh, Brian Taylor is our guest tonight. His book is Fighting for Citizenship. Black Northerners and the Debate Over Military Service in the Civil War. Brian, it's been a pleasure talking with you. Oh, Jerry, it's been a pleasure uh, talking with you. It's, it's been an honor to be here, and, and uh, thank you for having me. Well, thank you, and listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.